Well, let's go to 2 Kings 22. I'm continuing the altar series. Uh, my message today is when the altar is restored. When the altar is restored. In fact, I don't have my altar out here. Somebody grab my altar for me uh, and let's bring it out. I, we haven't done this a little bit. I just kind of want this visual reminder in front of you. So when the altar is restored, how many of you have found that life has a way of pushing the altar? What's the altar? The place of encounter and experience and surrender and trusting God. Life has a way of pushing altars to the periphery of your life. How many know what I'm saying is true? You can say amen. Absolutely. Come on, Brian, just put it right here. You know, we, we get busy. We, we don't do this intentionally. We don't do this purposely. But we all know what it's like when we first come to the Lord and, and, and our hearts are on fire and we're so thankful for God's grace and mercy and forgiveness. And unfortunately, too many people think the altar is a piece of furniture like this in the front of a church. And and that's the only time we encounter that. Well, what we've been understanding is that this whole series, Altered, is about a lifestyle. Someone say lifestyle. The altar is where we encounter God. The altar is, is the greatest place. So it could be in the front of a church. It could be in your car. It could be in your home. It could be in your prayer closet at home. It can be silently praying at work. The altar is where I encounter God. The altar is where uh, we experience the grace of God. How many are thankful for the grace of God? Unearned favor. We go to the altar and, and we say, God, here's my life. And we experience the grace of God. The altar, and, and this is so critical, this is being lost in the Western church. Now, in the rest of the world, I want you to listen to me. The rest of the world, the church by and large, in the rest of the world, particularly southern hemisphere, the southern half of this planet, they're not struggling with a watered-down version of Christianity. Hear, hear what I just said? They're not, li- they're not building churches based on compromise and easy believism. They're building churches that believe the Word of God is the Word of God. They are desperate for the power of the Holy Spirit. They believe there's nothing too hard for God. The gifts of the Holy Spirit operate. They don't push the Holy Spirit into some side room like a disruptive child they're embarrassed of on Sunday morning. They're fully devoted followers of Jesus, many of them at the risk of their life or career. And and so they're not wallowing in the compromise of the Western church. So the altar to them is not only a place and to us of encounter and grace, it's a place of transformation. See, what we've done, when you take the power out of the gospel, then what you've done, you rob people of what the altar does. The altar, the place you meet God is where your life is changed. Church is not just where you come to feel better about the, the, the part of my language, the mess you're stuck in. You know, that's not the gospel. The gospel is not, well, you know, you sin, I sin, we all sin. Let's just feel better about our sin and God loves us all. Come on. You don't need a cross for that. You don't need the power of the Holy Spirit for that. Am I right or wrong? So, So the altar is where we encounter God's mercy and grace and love. And it's where we encounter His power to change our lives. And if you're like me, and I think we are, I do not need just a one-time encounter in my life. I need a constant encounter with the life-changing power of God. I'm not proud of what I'm about to say, but I'm going to be honest with you. The first altar I came to when I got saved as a young adult in college, I, I was delivered of some things. I was transformed by the power of God. 
My language changed. My vocabulary changed. I use words you've never heard me use, and I'm not proud of that. I, I, I ingested things you wouldn't think I've ingested. I'm trying to be proper in what I'm saying. If you don't know what that means, then forget it. Don't worry about it. I ingested things I shouldn't have ingested, and I wish I'd never had, and I knew better. But I was delivered from those things in my life. And since that time, I don't have a cussing problem anymore. I don't have a drinking and a drug problem anymore. But I need some transformation because I've had a forgiveness problem at times in my life. I've had some people I didn't know if I want to forgive or not. And the only way I got it right was this kind of talk right here. Where I said, God, you've got to help me. I want to punch them, but I don't want to forgive them. You know, I read Nehemiah said, God, I pulled their beard out and knocked out their teeth. I said, can we do that in the modern and the New Testament? He said, no. I said, all right, I just will ask. So you see, I need, I, I need to be transformed on an ongoing basis in my life. I, I'm, I'm not dealing with the things I, I dealt with when I first got saved, thank God. Now, I couldn't, you could if you play around in the wrong places. But I don't want to do that anymore. And God delivered me, and I don't want to go back to that. But I'm still under construction. So I need a lifestyle at the altar. How many know what I'm saying? The power of God to transform me. We don't need more of George. We need less of George and more Jesus. John the Baptist, the forerunner, the one that brought Christ, said, I have to decrease so that he can increase. You know where we decrease? At the altar. You know where he increases? At the altar. You know where our world sees less of us and more of him? When the altar's our lifestyle. When I stop trying to find somebody to agree with me when I'm running away from the altar, and I start trying to get a crowd around me that's running to the altar, my life is going to be different. All right, we're all here. So, so we understand the incredible privilege of the altar. It's where we find hope and purpose. It, it, it's, the altar is not religious furniture. It's a lifestyle. Now today we're going to look at the example of, of a remarkable young man, King Josiah, for 2 Kings 22, that God used to restore the altar to a nation. It, it, it's dramatic. This, this man's age, his, his surroundings, the, he, he had everything going against him. So I want you to connect with this. You, you know, most of the time, let, let me tell you, let, let me explain like this. Our carnal nature, our sinful nature is always pulling us away from the altar. You know why? Because on the altar, flesh always dies. In the Old Testament, it was an animal, right? It was a ram or a goat or a sheep or a bull, right? It was, it's flesh dies on the altar. In the New Testament, it's not a ram or a goat or a bull or a sheep. It's me and you <laughs> that our carnal nature begins to be done away with. So our sinful nature always is pulling us away from the altar. Don't go there. Don't do that. Don't go to the altar. And the Spirit of God's always pulling us to this altar. See? And, and so we, we're going to learn something from Josiah, this king. So let, let's go to 2 Kings 22 and verse 1. Uh, this is such an example. How do we restore altars? See, I believe all of us are, are going to have to be careful that in our life that at certain times, listen to me, every one of us are going to need to restore some altars in our life. Are you with me? I, I've taken some time to help you understand what I'm talking about. We must 
restore altars. There are going to be times where we have given something to God and we've pushed away from that. We have to learn how do we get back to those places. All right, look at this. 2 Kings 22, 1. Josiah was eight years old when he became the king. What in the world? That's illogical. It's not in the normal pattern of things. Children don't lead adults. Now, I know today that's changed, but... I've been in some homes, I didn't know who was mom and daddy. Parents ask the kids, can they do things? Uh, Johnny, can we go eat dinner now? You're going to hurt Johnny acting like that. Um, Susie, do you want to get up and go to school, sweetheart? Who lost their mind? Do you want to get up and go to school? Of course not. You don't, you know. I had one lady tell me, you know, teenage son, this trouble's getting to too. She goes, I don't know what to do. I said, why? I go, well, I want to be the cool mom. The inmates are running the institution. It's just, you want to be the cool mom. I said, can I tell you something? I'm not trying to be ugly here, but, you know, look. You got to decide when you want your kids to like you now or later. Because if you're doing the right thing, they're not going to like you now a lot. Did you just hear what I said? They're not going to like you right now a lot if you're really doing the right thing. But later, for the rest of their life, they're going to say, Thank you for not letting me be a knucklehead. Thank you that you said no. Thank you that you kept me out of that. Thank you you had enough guts. Thank you that you love me enough. So just decide. Do you want your kids to like you now or later? Parenting is not a popularity contest. It's a responsibility to raise children to love God. That's not my message at all. I need to hurry. But Josiah was eight. So there was something out of order. You understand that? There's something out of order here. Let's read. He was eight years old when he became king and he reigned in Jerusalem 31 years. His mother's name was Jedidah, daughter of Adiah. She was from Bozkath. I just, aren't you glad you don't have to tell everybody's mother and grandmother and where they're from? Just say, I'm George. Nice to meet you. Okay. Look at verse 2. He did what was right in the eyes of the Lord and walked in all the ways of his father David, not turning aside to the right or the left. So how did this little boy become king at eight years of age, as I told you, when you see something like, like that, you need to understand something is dysfunctional. Something's out of order. So how, do, how did this happen? If we read the previous chapters in the, that, that are here in Second Kings and also in First and Second Chronicles, the history of the kings of Judah and Israel, you'll find out that Josiah's grandfather and his father were very ungodly, wicked kings. They led God's people away from his word. They abandoned the temple of God. They, they rejected the altar of God. And the nation became so corrupt under the leadership of his grandfather and his father. That's his lineage that he grew up in. That things became so difficult that they assassinated his father when he was eight years old. So he has grown up in a hierarchy, in a, in, in, in a kingdom, in a palace 
where they are to be called the people of God. They are in Judah. They're the southern kingdom of Israel. Israel is divided into two nations, the northern tribes, and then the two southern tribes are in Judah. Jerusalem is their capital, the holy city, and and it is an idolatrous uh, uh, cesspool of sin and demonic idolatry that this young boy is born into. And to make it worse, his father's assassinated. And there's no one left but him. And at eight years of age, they put him on the throne. Now, we, we, we are wonderful at looking at excuses to stay away from the altar in our culture today. And he had every reason not to serve God. His grandfather was wicked. His father was wicked. Someone killed his father. His family was dysfunctional. He didn't have any godly example. There was no male there for him, him to follow in his family. Everything was against him. Listen to me. But Josiah had something that every one of us have, no matter what everyone else does, and that's the right to make a decision about what you're going to do with your life. He had the power to choose. You and I have the power to choose. If everybody else blows it every place in our life, it's still your life and you have the power to make a decision. And when you make the right decision, God will back you up every single time. So Josiah, he's eight years old, born in in abject sin and dysfunction. When we read through the history of Israel and Judah, Josiah was the last godly king for Judah. When he came to the throne, the northern tribes, uh, ten, Israel had already fallen in Samaria and were exiled and under foreign control. Josiah was the 16th king of Judah. Numbers are big in, in, in Hebrew and in this, the way we look at God's calendars and eight is the number of new beginning. And so he's 16. He's the second opportunity for new beginning in that nation. He's the only hope for them. And so we, we, we read about him. Uh, we're going to stay here in 2 Kings 22, but 2 Chronicles 34 is a parallel account of the kings of Judah and Israel. And in that account, that we're told that at the age of 16, the Bible says Josiah began to earnestly seek God. Wow. He was made king at eight. He had no idea what he was doing. You know, someone had to lead him and guide him and make the choices. He was eight years old. But by the time he was 16... Think of this. Think of the privilege that boy had. He's sitting on the throne of Judah and he's 16. He's had everything he wanted since he was 8. And of all the things a boy could do as a young teenager, you know what too many of us would have done today if we were king at 16? Give me a new car and everything else I want. And I can blame everybody that I'm a spoiled brat because I didn't have a daddy. Because I didn't have a family. Because everybody blew it before me. But this guy at 16, the Bible says, began to seek God with all of his heart. It's amazing. Then we read as we go on that, not only that, but at the age of 16, what did he begin to do? The altar was in his heart before it was ever restored back to the nation. 16, the influence of one person. Are you following me? We're talking about restoring altars. He began to seek God with all of his heart. Second Chronicles 34 says, Four years later, at the age of 20, he began to go through the nation and purge and demolish all the false altars that had been built by his grandfather and his father where the nation worshipped. You see, 
we're in 2 Kings 22. Let's look at verse 3. So not, not only did he begin to destroy the altars and, 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 and begin to tear them down and get rid of the false altars. And, and can, I, listen, can I tell you something? You're never going to build the correct altar in your life till you tear the false ones down first. See, if we're going to restore altars, we can't put the altar of man and the altar of God in the same place in our heart. Are you with me? You see the process? Verse 3. In the 18th year of his reign, King Josiah sent his secretary, Shaphan, son of Azaliah, the son of Shulam, to the temple of the Lord. He said, go up to Hilkiah, the high priest, and have him get ready the money that has been brought into the temple of the Lord, which the doorkeepers have collected from the people. Have them entrusted to the men appointed to supervise the work on the temple and have these men pay the workers who repair the temple of the Lord. The carpenters, the builders, and the masons also have them purchase timber and dress stone to repair the temple. To repair the temple. Under his grandfather and father, the temple had fallen into ruin. They didn't worship there. The only thing that happened in the temple of God that was built to honor and serve the Lord by Solomon where they had moved the altar of God, they had put the altars of demons and idols there and neglected it and it was falling down. He said, so the first thing I'm going to do, if I'm going to restore the altar to my life and my family and my nation, I've got to get rid of the false ones so I can now rebuild the things of God. Everybody follow with me here. So what does he do? Altars had to be destroyed. It's in you and our life. Let's make it relevant to today. We're not living the Old Testament. We're not living under law. So, so how do we tear down the old altars and build, restore the right ones in our life? The word we use in the New Testament is repentance. Repentance. What does that mean? It, it says that, that I am repenting. I am changing how I think. I am walking away from that because I am coming back to the altar of God in my life. Don't raise your hand and don't point at anybody. But there are people who have gotten off track and need to come back to God. That once walked close with Him and don't walk close anymore. That once had a fire relationship and now it's pretty cold. And the Bible says if I'm going to come back and restore the altar and the presence and the blessing and the power of God in my life, I've got to do some repenting. I've got to let go of some things and turn and come back. Repentance always proceeds or precedes restoration. You with me? The cross always comes before the resurrection. He tore down the altars. And so when I really repent, when I really get rid of all the idols and the false things in my life so I can rebuild and restore the altar, it means I've closed all the doors to the path. He didn't just pick up the false altars and say, you know, we may need these later. Let's go put them back here in a closet. No, he burned them up and destroyed them because there was going to be room for one altar in the kingdom of Judah. Everybody with me right now? You're really quiet this morning. See, Paul said it like this. I've got to forget what's behind and reach towards what's ahead. If I'm going to make this, it's time to rebuild the altar. The altar. In the tabernacle that, that, that uh, Josiah was working with in the Old Testament temple, which is a type, a picture of how our approach to God is, the first place of worship as you came into the presence of God was the altar. The altar is where you began to worship. The altar is where you began to access the presence of God. See, and, 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 it's, and, and can, do you notice in Josiah's account and in our lives that if we remove the altar from our life, many false altars begin to proliferate, proliferate in our lives. See, if I take the cross out of my life, if I take the altar out of my life, then all these false altars are going to begin to pop up everywhere around me. Everybody with me? So then... 
Let's go to verse 8 in 2 Kings 22. So he's removing the false things. Repentance. He's restoring the genuine altar, the approach into the presence of God, where we worship, where we access his presence. And in verse 8, we begin to read this. As they're now repairing the temple and going in, watch what happens here. Hilkiah, the high priest, said to Shaphan, the secretary, I have found the book of the law in the temple of the Lord. You know what that was? It's the Bible. It's the Pentateuch. It's the law of Moses. Look, they had lost it. The word of God was over, shoved in a corner when they began to restore the temple and rebuild. He said, hey, guess what I found? I found the word of God back here. He said, then Shaphan, the secretary, went to the king and reported to him, your officials have paid out the money that was, a, uh, that was in the temple of the Lord and have entrusted it to the workers and supervisors at the temple. Then Shaphan, the secretary, informed the king, Hilkiah, the priest, has given me a book. They didn't even know what it is. The priest said, I got this book. What do you think? So, and he read from it. In the presence of the king, verse 11, when the king heard the words of the book of the law, he tore his robes. He said, my God, we haven't been doing what the Bible says. We, we, we haven't been doing this. What is going to happen to us? What are we going to do? And he was so distraught. It was a sign in that day of repentance. He tore his robe. He said, God, forgive us. What in the world were we thinking we have been building this kingdom and doing what we do, and we haven't even consulted your word. We've been disobedient. Can, can I tell you something? Uh, let me just say this. When people, even the people who claim to know the Lord, listen to me closely, when people who claim to be Christians avoid the altar, they will begin to neglect the word of God in their life. Why should I want to read the word when I don't want to know about God? You know what happens in America today and in churches across this land? People don't even believe the Bible is the Word of God anymore. It's a constant argument. Well, what part of it's the Word? All of it's the Word of God. If part of it's not the Word, then what part is and what part isn't? This is the Word of God. And you won't have trouble believing the Bible is God's Word if you're not running from the altar. If you're running from the altar, the last thing you want to do is read the Bible. In fact, let me show you something you'll never see. Someone reading the Bible while they're running from the altar. I'll give you another look over here. You won't find that. Here's where people read the Word. Right here. God, it's your Word. What do you say to me? What do you want me to hear? What do you want me to know? If, I don't, if I'm running from the altar, I'm, I'm not reading this Word. I don't want it. What did that find when they began to restore the altar? The Word of God began to be renewed in their life. The Word of God began to be put back in order. It was an amazing transformation when the Word of God comes. See, the altar, watch this. The altar is where I exchange something I have for something only God has. See, I give Him my obedience. I give Him my repentance. He makes His Word come alive in me again. The altar where I exchange what I have for something only God has. That's what happens. Look at this. Look at these verses. Why, why do we need the word? Look at Psalm 119, 105. Psalm 119, 105. Why do I need the word? Why is it important in my life to be able to do this? This is what the Bible says. Your word. Your word. It's coming. I know it's coming. By faith, it's coming. See? Your word is a lamp for my feet and a light on my path. 
See, if I neglect the altar, I neglect the word, and the next thing is, what happens? I don't know where I'm walking. Then what do we say in our culture today? It does. I don't see that. I can't see that. That's not what it looks like to me. It's because you're stumbling around in the dark. Thank you for that amen. Your word is a lamp for my feet. Your word is a what? Light on my path. Look at Psalm 119.9. How, how do we get this? How can a young person stay on the path of purity? By living according to your word. Look at our culture today. Purity is, is scoffed at. Laughed at. You know, there, there's some neat things Christian parents are doing. Meeting with their daughter as a young, maybe a preteen, and, and, and talking to her about her virginity and her purity and what it means to save herself from marriage. And they give her a promise ring. And, and one of the things she does is she keeps herself pure. Then she gives that to her husband during that wedding uh, ceremony. What a beautiful thing. But can I tell you something? You need to do that with your son. What do you mean, a pure girl? And a, what, what, what are you telling a boy? You, it's okay for you? What's wrong with us? I have people tell me that go to church on Sunday. I'm not marrying somebody. How, if we hadn't been physical, I'm not going to buy a car without a test drive. Well, then go marry a car. I got to try it out. I got a lot of things I want to say right now, but I'm not sure they're from the Lord. I guess I'll stop. How can a young person stay on the path of purity? By living according to your word. If there's no altar in your home, there's no word in your kids. If there's no word in your kids, there's not going to be purity in their life. If there's no light for their feet and lamp to their path, how are we going to know what's the right thing to do, God? We need to restore some altars. We need to come back and pray in your house again. And talk about the word in your home. And pray with your children and read the word with your children. Look, don't, don't mess it up. If they're, if they're four years old, don't read three chapters. I'd get bored. I got ADD. You got to hit it and go with me. I mean, you know, they're four years old. You're trying to have a revival meeting. God have mercy. Read them a verse. Hug them. Tell them you love them. Pray for them. Dear God, if you think you're a preacher, go start a church, but don't kill your kids with it. I mean, I'm just being honest. Give them a verse. Read them a line. Hug them. Kiss them. Love them. Tell, ask them what's going on in their life. Pray for them. Put your altar in your home. Make it appropriate. Age appropriate. You understand what I'm saying? No wonder some people don't want to go to church. They're like, the home is killing me now. Why do I want to go to church and do more of it? Look at Hebrews 4.12. For the word of God is alive and active, sharper than a double-edged sword. Look at this. Penetrates even to the dividing of soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. Listen, left to ourselves, we come up with some goofy stuff. We have ideas and thoughts. You know, we sit down and we talk to somebody and we get some people around us. I'm reminded of what the Holy Spirit said earlier in our worship time today. You can find somebody to agree with any crazy thing you want to think today. And just because there's two crazy people together, it's still crazy. Didn't make it better. If you get a room full of them, it doesn't make it better. 
If you once had a commitment, I know I'm preaching straight up today, but you're not just, I love you, I love you, I love you. I want your family blessed. I want your marriage blessed. I want you blessed. I want to see God's greatness happen. i got to hurry because I'm going to show you something here. But look, we, we can get off track, but this word's going to judge the thoughts and attitudes of my life. Let me show you one more. We're going to move on. Let's look at Ephesians chapter 6 and verse 17. Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, the greatest weapon you have in spiritual warfare. What's spiritual warfare? When doubts are assailing you, when temptation is assailing you, when Satan is throwing his fiery darts and temptation and thoughts and accusations and guilt and shame, the greatest weapon in your arsenal is the Word of God. As you begin to speak the Word of God, it is spiritual power that is released against the forces of hell. And what will beat us every time goes back in fear when the Word of God comes forth in this thing. You see, that nation was struggling because when they left the altar, they left the Word of God. And, and, and so we, 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 need to, we need to move on. I, I just, I'm going to have to maybe preach some more of this sometime. I'm, I'm really leaving some, some good stuff out of here, but it is what it is. I want, you to go to, I want you to go to chapter 23, and I want you to go to verse 15 with me. 23, 15. Josiah went through the kingdom destroying these altars. I, I can give you a list. It's like you're walking through the, 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 the culture of today. The, the, their altars were uh, places where children were being sacrificed to these demon idols. Our children are being sacrificed today in America. Maybe not in fire to an idol, but, but, but to the morals we live by. And then there were, there were uh, worship that had male and female prostitutes as part of their worship. Homosexuality, prostitution, illicit sex. This was part of that nation that that boy was born in. And he said, enough's enough. We'll have no more of it. But let me show you this. If you have the courage and the faith and the heart to say, I'm going to restore the altar. I'm going to do what God put me on this world to do. Look at this. As he's going through this process, watch this. When you're just obeying God, when when, when you're on the right side of the altar, you step into a destiny moment that is supernatural. Watch this. The only place in Scripture we see this happen. So we're in chapter 23, verse 15. I want you to watch this. Follow with me. Even the altar at Bethel, Bethel means house of God, the high place made by Jeroboam, son of Nebat, who had caused Israel to sin. This was 300 years ago he built this altar. Still there. It's an ungodly altar. Watch this. Who had caused Israel to sin. Even that altar and high place, he demolished it. He burned the high place and ground it to powder and burned the Asherah pole also. Then Josiah looked around and when he saw the tombs that were on the hillside, he had the bones removed from them and burned them on the altar to defile it. So nobody could ever use that altar again. You ready? In accordance with the word of the Lord, watch this, proclaimed by the man of God who foretold these things. The king asked, what is that tombstone I see? The men of the city said, it marks the tomb of the man of God who came from Judah and pronounced against the altar of Bethel the very things which you have done. 
They said there's a man buried there that 300 years ago prophesied to that ungodly king that someday God was going to raise someone up who would tear down your false altar and bring this nation back to God. Now, I want you to turn, because this will be the last scripture that, that we see today, but I want you to turn... Oh, I have it here, I have it here, I have it here. I'm just hurrying. First Kings 13. First Kings 13. Turn there with me. I want you to see this. I want you to read that prophecy. First Kings 13. I want you to see this moment in his life and catch it in your life and mine. The reason this is important. First Kings 13. Are you there? Verse number one. By the word of the Lord. Now this is 300 years before when that altar, that false altar was first built at Bethel. Okay, by the word of the Lord, a man of God came from Judah to Bethel as Jeroboam was standing by the altar to make an offering. He cried out against the altar by the word of the Lord, O altar, O altar, this is what the Lord says. Look at this. A man named Josiah will be born in the house of David 300 years before he was born. A prophet stood and said, a man named Josiah will someday be raised up and walk to this point. Sorry if I'm getting excited, but that's exciting. On you he will sacrifice the priests of the high place who now make offerings here and human bones will be burned on you. That same day the man of God gave a sign. This is the sign the Lord has declared. The altar will be split apart and the ashes on it will be poured out. 300 years before this 8-year-old boy stood on the throne of Israel with everything against him the world could put, with every demon in hell howling in his face, with every altar of God torn down, he began to rise up and say I'm going to seek God I'm going to get rid of these false altars and I'm going to serve God and restore the altar and on the right side of repentance and restoration that man stepped into 300 years of destiny on his life I want you to know while you were in your mother's womb God began to write a story of your life according to Psalm 139 and you have a choice and I have a choice you can live your whole life outside of the will of God but when you find the altar of God in your life and begin to step into the will of God what God put you on this earth to do if he has to wait 300 years for someone to say yes he knows your name he knows where you are he knows why you're here and God will do what he said and restore his altar and bless his people through faithful men and women of God Josiah, 300 years before he was born, the prophet said, God has a man. He knew his name, the specificity of that, and the personalization of prophecy blows my mind. Pastor Joy, please come. When, when you realize, when you and I realize God's plan for us, your name, your name has a God-ordained plan with it. We're not just people living in this day. You say, well, I'm not a prophet and I'm not a king, but you're a mother, you're a father, you're a wife, you're a husband, you're a classmate, you're a co-worker, you're, you're, you're a member of the family of faith and believers, and God knows your name. God has prophesied. God has purpose for you. God's not through with us. I want you to stand with me today. See, please don't leave. Just stand. I want us to pray. Just stand. Don't leave, please. This altar just represents what I'm talking about today, what God is saying to us. Pastor, how do I get back to the altar? How do I restore 
God's presence in my life. Well, I've got to get rid of the false altars. They're cluttering up your life. They're pushing the real altar of God over to a closet. I have to get rid of those altars. I've got to bring this one back in the center of my life. When I do, I'm going to begin to love the Word of God again. I'm going to get in this Word. It's going to be the lamp to my feet, the light to my path. It's going to help me know about my thoughts and decisions. And I'm going to defeat the devil with this. And then the blessing of that is that I begin to step into the will of God for my life. Josiah did everything he did to walk on that hill in Bethel and destroy that altar because God had said, I'm going to raise that man up. I'm going to raise that man up. And I wonder today, as we stand in this room, I I want to ask you, could you be the one whose name is written in heaven? Listen to me. Could it be your name that God has said and planned that you would be the one to bring revival to this region right now? Could it be? Could it be your name is the one written down? Maybe it's not my name. Maybe your name is written down that you will do something out of obedience to God. Josiah was just doing what he thought he should do. He wasn't trying to be famous. He wasn't trying to be great. He did not even know his name was in the prophecy. He was just trying to encounter God. Get rid of the false altars. Put the real ones back. Colleges have had revivals in history of this nation. Could it be that your name is written on one of those colleges in heaven? Could it be that in the high schools of North Alabama that your name is the name written in heaven for that school? Could it be that the thing that changes America is that your name is written down as a government official who will boldly be faithful to Jesus in government? or education, or media, or the arts? Could it be that what God is saying to us now is that if we will restore the altars and put God first, that He wants us to stop running from society, but influence society? Stop hiding out and start being bold about what we do? And if I have to compromise to get my position, I don't need that position? Because if I'm faithful to God and nobody stands with me, do you think everybody was clapping while Josiah tore their altars down? Do you think everybody was shouting and celebrating while he destroyed generations of filth and perversion? Do you think the demons gave up easy? Do you think it was easy? I don't think it was easy. But if God be for you, who can be against you? And when you step into your destiny and say, God wrote my name down. Thank God I did what he put me on this earth to do. I don't, I've never seen my name written down anywhere in those kind of prophecies. But I am going to go to heaven someday. And then it's going to be too late for me to do something on this earth. And I want to go to heaven and I want to see what God wrote that Psalm 139 talks about. And I hope on the list they're all checked off. He did it. He did that. He did that. He said that. He went there. And some of your greatest check marks are going to be when nobody's watching. 
nobody saw it. But the hand of heaven said, that's why he's there. That's why she's there. We need to build some altars, don't we? It's Sunday morning. I know you're not supposed to do this. I read all the books. I know what church is supposed to be like now. I know all that. I read all that. But I'm going to do it anyway. Because somebody wrote a book, didn't call me. The man who wrote that book called me. I just want to hear well done. That's what I got to have. So, if you'd join me, everyone at Wood would say, Pastor, I just want the right altars in my life. Would you just come and stand? Come on, everybody. I wish everybody would come. As a church family, listen, as you come, fill in these sides over here, okay? On the sides, go all the way to the wall like this. Would you just say, Pastor, I want to come forward. I know we're not supposed to get up. We're supposed to be cool and, you know, slip in and out, be secret Christians and nobody knows who we are. Just hide out, be cool. But what if we just quit worrying about that? Just say, I want God. I want God. I don't want us to be irrelevant. Listen to me. We need to influence society. I'm not saying let's be a bunch of idiots and nerds and goofballs, crazy people. You ought to be the smartest person there, best worker, most creative, intelligent, best communicator, best friend. You hear what I'm saying? We Everybody ought to want to work with you. Everybody should want to be around you. We're not hiding. We're, we're shining the light. But it only shines off this altar. You understand? I'm just saying, let's be bold. Let's not be afraid of who we are. Let's go change this world. I don't want anybody to hide out. I want us to be there. Let's go belonging to him. There's something written with your name on it, just like Josiah. Man, come on. Come on, it's worth fulfilling that. We're going to be in heaven someday. Let's make sure what God put our name on, we do it.